Well, well, well. What have we here? It's another episode of Murder's a Drag. Obviously. I'm here. You're here. The shenanigans are happening. It's gonna be great. I am your always consistent host, Aura Van Dank. I know I took another few weeks away from the cast, but in very Aura fashion, I had an emotionally taxing few weeks. I flew across the country to... Okay, no, let me even go back a little bit further. I went to San Diego to do a gig. No, even further. I The day before that, I went to San Marcos to do a gig. Drove from here to there, very far drive, then there, back the same night, and then the next day, drove from here to San Diego, and... Because it was Comic-Con weekend, I didn't want to get a hotel, it was very expensive, you know, I didn't want to deal with that. And I parked my car in the lot, and then there is some sort of unclear crime that occurs in this parking lot that I'm at. And it's closed until 2am for crime scene investigation processes, I guess. I don't know. All I was told was that it was closed at 2am. I don't know if I said until. It was closed at 2am. And I had to leave. And they were like, well, you can get your car back in the morning. And I was like, okay, cool. (laughs) I don't have anywhere to stay. I have friends in San Diego, but I don't want to stay. Okay, Not that I don't want to stay with them, but there's a lot of people there that I know. But I don't want to just be like, hey, I'm coming over to your house because of this, this, and that. I don't know. I'm weird like that. Some of you will get it. Some of you won't. And that's just how it is. But that debacle happened. I obviously had to get a hotel room, pay for that. It was very expensive. Sleep there which I did not actually sleep at all because I don't usually get good sleep in a hotel room, let alone with all that going on. And the next day I had a flight from Palm Springs to New York and there was like layovers and shit that went down and I luckily made it to the flight and it was delayed. (laughs) And then the next one was delayed. And then the next one was delayed and the next one was delayed all because of heat and weather and crazy shit. So that was a journey in and of itself. And then when I got back, I learned that a friend of mine from the OG friend group in high school was murdered, which was a lot to take in. And yeah, now we're here. Back to this. Murder's a drag with me, Aura Van Dank. Again, always consistent, always here for you. I'm lying. I'm not consistent. But I mean, DM me on Instagram if you really miss me, really want to talk. I'm sure I will respond. As long as you're not, like, one of those bots that's trying to get me to buy shit from your website. I'm not doing that. Oh, and while I was away, I went and saw my sister in Boston, went to P-Town in Massachusetts, which was a lot of driving after I got there, so even more adventure. But I got this tattoo. Tattoo. I don't know how to show on a camera. What do I know about cameras? I've only been on YouTube since I was, like, a kid. Literally nothing. That's sad. Anyway, tattoo's cute, though, and I'm getting another one soon because I love tattoos a lot, and I'm surprised I don't have more at this point in my life, but a lot has happened, okay? So, tattoos weren't always on the list for me of things that were attainable or something that I could actually go do for myself, but now that they are, I'm gonna get a ton. I'm getting another one up here of that dollhouse behind me and a heart coming out. It'll be great. I'll show you, maybe, if I can figure out a camera by the time I get that one. That'll be on Friday. Probably literally right after this episode gets published. As you're listening, I'll be getting tattooed. So, just know that. I think that's the gist of where I've been, what I've been up to. Um, 
Oh, Charlie and I opened a business for technology services and consulting. It's um, it's great. Well, it's more Charlie's thing, obviously. I'm not that smart. So yeah, it's more of just me watching and helping decorate, which has been a lot of fun because I like doing all that good stuff. Uh, yeah, it's going well. Making that money, doing the thing. It's going really well. Thank you for tuning into my life. Those of you who only come to listen about my life can go now. I'm sure there's so many of you. <laughs> and those of you who want to listen to an episode can get on in and get ready and get active. Before I get into the case that I studied this week, I wanted to say a quick word about O'Shea Sibley. O'Shea was a professional dancer that was murdered while dancing at a gas station in Brooklyn. He was on the way home from a Beyonce concert during her Renaissance tour and stopped for gas and was accosted while he was voguing because he was a member of the ball scene in New York. After a brief altercation with the homophobes, he was stabbed to death. This is the reality for LGBTQ plus people in America and all over the world, specifically queer people of color and especially black trans women. I'll definitely be covering O'Shea's life fully in another video and giving him all of the time and dedication that he deserves, but I just wanted to mention that. I know it's been in the news. It got overshadowed by that PS5 riot thing, whatever they're calling it, that happened. I didn't pay too much attention to that. In New York, there was also a vigil for O'Shea that day that just didn't get any coverage, and since then has kind of honestly fallen out of the headlines. So... I think it needs to be discussed more as a bigger issue, obviously. I just had to say that before starting this week's episode. This week, I dove into my research of the murders of Anthony Walgate, Gabriel Cavari, Daniel Whitworth, and Jack Taylor. The only thing those four men had in common were that they were all users of Grindr and had all come into contact with the same person through that app. Anthony Walgate, or you know, this is England, so it's probably Anthony Walgate, grew up close to his mom in Northern England. I'm so sorry, that's my interpretation of that. And grew up happy, according to his mother and family. Him and his mom specifically were very close. From early on, Anthony had a propensity for colors and to go for bright colored clothes and crayons and colorful things and he liked fashion he liked he was good at coordinating colors with fashion after finishing out his high school education he realized that he had a big passion for fashion and decided to further his education in that route he took steps in that direction by taking some classes at the university in east london as a fashion student all in all, Anthony was out there in London, going to school, left home, was having a great time, living on his own, doing the thing, becoming an adult. Typical life of a gay man in their early 20s, essentially. And even though this is East London, I imagine that experience to be a lot like the song South London Forever by yours truly, Florence Welch, Florence and the Machine. Look it up, listen to it, agree with me. We don't do dissent on this channel, you have to unsubscribe. <laughs> Anthony was really thriving at school as a fashion student and was even apparently working on a fashion show, which was all depicted in this BBC drama that I can't watch because I live in the States and there are certain things that 
you can't get because of um, like copyright laws and whatever. So I'm not happy about that. Couldn't watch this thing. Can't watch a lot of things that I want. I also can't watch the Catherine Tate show. Can't find that either. Anyway, that's just my my qualms with BBC. I did find an interview about that show from an Examiner Live piece by Phoebe Tonks, where Anthony's mom is quoted saying, I think the most emotional part of the program, spelled the British way, was the first 15 minutes or so, which shows Anthony when he was alive and preparing for the fashion show. The actor playing Anthony really brought him to life, and it was both difficult and uplifting to watch. That only makes me wish that I could watch it that much more, because his mom approved, and apparently the families were heavily involved and all approved the documentary, the docuseries, the BBC drama thing that they did. I don't even know what it is, because I can't watch it. All I could do was read interviews about it. But if you can watch it, I recommend it, based loosely on reviews that I've read. Anthony's mom, whose name is Sarah, by the way, was a big fan of the series and was very excited to meet the actress who portrayed her and loved that they picked somebody from Northern England to play her character because she said she's not posh and she liked a, something like a regular bird from Northern England or, you know, very English sentence. It was nice to look at the picture of her and meeting the actress, though, and smiling through a terrible situation. On June 18th of 2014, after some grinder chats were exchanged, Anthony went on a date and was never seen alive again. Later, at about 4 a.m., a passerby saw a person slumped against the wall of an apartment complex in a neighborhood in London called Barking and noticed that the body was cold. They called the police and paramedics arrived to check out the scene. One of the paramedics that arrived said that he could tell the man had been dead for quite a while and at that point, things looked a little off to him. In a piece by Caroline Davies from The Guardian, the paramedic from the scene was quoted saying, The way it was positioned, it did not add up to the call I was given because it was a young male. That's why it appeared suspicious to me. If someone had a seizure, they wouldn't be sat upright with their legs crossed. I've never seen that in my career. However, when the cause of death was ultimately determined by the coroner, it was determined as an overdose of GHB. It was deemed accidental and looked at as a street drug user gay person in London. Anthony's mother was obviously broken. She didn't know what to do with herself, didn't know what to do about the situation, and didn't believe that Anthony would have spiraled into drug use within the time that he'd been away from home. Police, however, did not see it that way. Anthony was only 23 years old. Gabriel Kavari was born in Slovakia in 1992. He was raised there as well, and there's not a ton of information on like his family life or his upbringing. Other than that, he attended university in Slovakia and then moved to England in 2014 so that he could work on becoming an interpreter for the NHS. Gabriel met John Pape on Grinder. He moved in with John on the cheap because Gabriel was on a very tight budget and John understood that and wanted to see Gabriel succeed and seems like a really cool dude, so shout out to John Pape for being a cool dude. Gabriel lived with John for six weeks. John says it was a great roommate situation. Gabriel was quiet. They did hang out and watched the news together and they went to a gay bar together a few times. It didn't work out romantically or anything, but they formed a good friendship. After six weeks of living with him, Gabriel told John that he'd be moving into a different apartment. And John was kind of shocked because he knew that Gabriel didn't have a ton of money, so the deal must have been super sweet. 
John didn't ask too many questions, though. He didn't want to pressure Gabriel either way. And only knew that Gabriel said that he was moving to Barking. Five days after he saw Gabriel leave, police came to his house to tell him Gabriel had been found dead from an overdose of GHB slumped over in a graveyard, about a block away from where Anthony's body was found. John was super crushed to hear that his new friend had died, but he was more so suspicious that police had come to him first as a new-ish roommate of ex-roommate of Gabriel's rather than trying to contact his loved ones or his family or anything. John had to do some digging and he found out that Gabriel did have family after all and John had to be the one to play detective to figure it out. He found out that Gabriel was in a relationship and had like a whole ass boyfriend in Spain. His name was Terry Amadio. Very Spanish, very like sexy Spanish lover energy there. I feel like them together would be the cover of a romance novel. Like he had this whole family that law enforcement decided just not to look at or try to find. It didn't take John very much searching to figure it out. Just Facebook and, you know, simple routes of figuring people out, usually. It would later be revealed in court that a family liaison officer never reached out or attempted to reach out to anybody in Gabriel's family and actually had him written down as Lithuanian when he was Slovakian. So they knew nothing about him, and it really seemed like they didn't care. Gabriel's death was not considered suspicious by any of the detectives or law enforcement on the scene that had to deal with his case or anybody. If they did care at this point, though, or look into it at all, they would know that another body was found a block away, died from the same thing, somewhat suspiciously. Like, there's definitely some stuff that could have been done at that point. Gabriel was only 22 years old. Daniel Whitworth grew up in the riverfront town of Gravesend, which is a suburb of London not too far away. His family really loved having him around all throughout his life because he would make them laugh and he also made them really good food. When he finished his high school career, he went on to take classes to become a professional chef and actually scored an interview at a hotel restaurant near his grandma's house. Him and his grandma were super close, so both of them were very stoked about this situation. Daniel was, once again, a stellar cook, so he made food for his grandma and his family like on the weekends and still all the time. In an interview by Jenny Horn from Kent Online, his grandmother, Barbara, said, He was able to come to me at lunchtimes for a bit to eat and to rest comfortably on most days. Daniel was never far away when I was ill, and he would stay overnight just to be sure I was okay during the night. I feel bad for everybody in his family, but after reading the interview with Nana Barbs, it absolutely tore me up. Like, this was... Whew, this woman was the sweetest grandma that I've ever heard, and I could hear everything in her accent as I was reading through this interview, and I just know that she probably, like, offered the interviewer biscuits and called them biscuits because it's England and it was cookies. Oh, my God. There's just a lot about the interview that was pretty heartbreaking, and it was hard to read Nana Barb's interview. But apparently, after, you know, their six weeks of grandma-grandson time, they... Unfortunately, had to break it up because Daniel got a better job offer in a place called Burrow Green and was very excited to get his start there. At that point, Daniel had also been talking to someone on Grinder, and in 2014 was feeling ready to meet up for a date. Unlike the other ones before him, was later found dead, wrapped in a sheet in the same graveyard as Gabriel, with a suicide note nearby. 
I'll just state now, I don't understand how one would commit suicide wrapped in a sheet. I don't understand why it's still not being looked at as suspicious at this point, but still not being looked at as suspicious at this point. The note read that he killed himself because he couldn't live with the guilt that he had overdosed Gabriel on GHB accidentally. And like, I know hindsight's twenty twenty, and it's easy to say things after the fact, but this genuinely, like, how would, why would anybody believe that was the real suicide note? Or that it was a suicide if your body is wrapped in a sheet. Absolute insanity. And it gets a lot worse. By June of 2015, Daniel's death was officially ruled a suicide by a coroner, and the suicide note was bought, I guess. They believed that. Daniel was only 21 years old. Earlier this year, in 2023, it was found that officers on the scene had taken photos of Daniel's body and shared them among other officers and friends in a WhatsApp group. Daniel's family is absolutely outraged, and in an article from ITV by Simon Harris, Daniel's father said, You can hardly believe that a person would do that. I don't know what to think about it. It's hard to believe. It's despicable, disgusting behavior. And his stepmother, who is arguably even angrier in the article, says, I felt sick. I still feel sick. I don't want to believe it. You think just as it can't get any worse, who could do that? It should not be too difficult to find out who was at the scene that day, who took the pictures, and they're not above their own law. They should be put inside for it. Commissioner Mark Rowley and his colleagues can look at their records and identify the people concerned. He can identify the individuals concerned here, and it's a criminal case. We want these people in prison. All I can say is good point, and amen, Mama. Jack Taylor was born and raised in Dagenham, Dagenham, I think is how you say it, in Essex. He was raised in a tight-knit and loving family. He was very, very close with his sisters, Donna and Jenny. He was also very close with his parents, who worked very hard to provide for the family. Mom cleaned schools, and Dad was a cab driver. Jack was your average, everyday boy growing up. He made it through school and then announced at 17 that he would need some help from his sisters to fill out his application to join the Army, and that collectively gave the entire family a heart attack. They didn't see it coming. After everyone had left home and Jack had been a cadet in the army for a while, the family made sure that they still spent every Saturday together when they could, and they would make meals together, play games together, and just have a family night often whenever they could fit one in because they found it very important. After he finished his service, Jack became a night shift forklift driver to make ends meet while he was laying the groundwork to become a police officer, ironically. In a Daily Mail article written by Catherine Knight, his sister Jenny was quoted saying, He'd sent off for a license to work as a security guard, which would allow him to have days off where he could be a special constable. He wanted to do something he felt would make a difference. The interview asks them if they were aware that Jack was gay, and the sisters admit that they didn't know for sure, but that they had a sisterly tingling that something was going on in that department of gayness, sexuality, whatever it's called. On September 13th of 2015, Jack went out for a date with someone that he'd been speaking to on Grindr and was never seen again. And was never seen alive again. His body was discovered next to the same graveyard in Barking, and his family was notified that he'd been found dead due to an overdose of GHB.
Jack's family knew that that couldn't be true. Because of his hard work and dedication to becoming a police officer, there was no reason for him to throw that away with starting a drug habit of hardcore drugs suddenly one night. Jack had also sworn off drugs, never touched them, wasn't the type to experiment. His family begged law enforcement to look further, but the police really didn't think there was anything there. So Jack's sisters took over, because they were not going to let this slide. Once they went into their own intense research, Jenny and Donna, Jack's sisters, found out that the syringe in his pocket was unused, which wasn't seen as suspicious by police, because that's pretty fucking suspicious, if we're being honest here. Jenny and Donna also found that three other men had died from the same cause in the same graveyard and focused their attention on Daniel's case. Jenny and Donna also found out that another man had died named Anthony the same way and was dumped a block away from where their brother was found. They begged police to look at some CCTV footage of where he was that night and if he was with anybody. And they checked through Facebook Messenger and did the whole nine yards. Finally, police acquiesced and did some actual work for the first time, and they found out that Jenny and Donna were actually onto something. The CCTV footage of Jack, just hours before he was found dead, showed him with another person. Jenny and Donna began leaning into the case of Anthony Walgate and making a lot more connections, and finally an officer out of Dagenham recognized the man on the CCTV footage of Jack as a person of interest that popped up in a New Year's Eve case back in 2013 for drugging a man and raping him after using GHB as the drug. So he was in the system, this guy recognizes him off of the CCTV footage and figures that this might be the guy. And now they finally believe that these murders have something to do with each other. The man is identified as Stephen Port. And upon interviewing neighbors and surrounding people, police learned that his apartment was evidently a revolving door of very young men. His neighbors said that he was concerned about the vulnerable boys that Port would bring around, but ultimately did nothing about it, which is shocking to me, because if you are going to mention it to the police, what the fuck? Anyway. On October 15th of 2015, Port was finally found and arrested and charged with the murder of Jack Taylor. Once he was in custody, after briefly denying everything and lying and fucking with police, he finally admitted to all of the murders, and they figured out a few further crimes, like the man in 2013 that Stephen had committed and decided they were going to charge him with life in prison. A little over a year later, after more incessant lying on the stand, after confessing, after families had to share a room with the killer of their family members and the police that sat there and did nothing then failed them and their children lots of ignored details and botched police work Stephen Port was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison the families can't take a whole lot of solace in it because they were failed at every turn Jack's sister Donna expressed her frustrations saying quote They've not just let down the boys and let down us families. They've let down the public they're supposed to protect. Which echoes back across the Atlantic to here, where they do the same thing. <laughs> so, that's the very frustrating case of the serial killer, Stephen Port. And my frustrations 
not being able to watch anything about it because I'm in America and we're the worst. So we don't let that content, or maybe it's England that's the worst because they're not letting the content come through. I don't know. After this case, I, I'm kind of inclined to believe that both are equally bad. As always, I hope you take something away from this episode, this series, everything that I do here. I hope you enjoy my content, my looks, what I serve you. If you do, I would appreciate if you popped a review of my work somewhere, wherever, podcast, YouTube, however you're indulging in this content. If you could leave a review and sign up for, you know, what is that called? I'm not good at this. Subscriptions? Hit the subscribe to me. <laughs> Hit the subscribe to me button. Make my day. Are you feeling lucky, punk? I'll see you next week. <laughs>